You're listening to Back to the Light with J.D. Rieger, Best of 2020, Volume 2. Hey everybody, welcome to yet another episode of Back to the Light. I am J.D. Rieger. First off, Happy New Year. We made it. 2020 is finally over. Of course, we're still in deep with the pandemic and have two more weeks of pure vengeful insanity from the president to look forward to, but it still feels good to shake last year off just a little bit. Here's hoping we figure some shit out together in 2021. Before we get to the program, which is double-sized this week, I just want to ask you to check out patreon.com slash jdreger. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash j-d-r-e-a-g-e-r and become a supporter of me and Back to the Light. Also, please visit backtothelight.net and see all the cool things we're up to over there. Now, for volume two of the best of 2020, guest producer Brendan Danley and I had a pretty hard time not just putting a clip in from every single episode that was left after volume one, which we very nearly did. In this supersized show, you are going to hear from Kate Crowder of Two-Way Radio, Chef Kelly English of Restaurant Iris, Ross Johnson, a.k.a. the Baron of Love, members of the Licorice Quartet, Tommy Bateman from The Passport Again, Chuck Roast from the Suburban Lawns and the Modifiers, Matthew Cause of Not a Surf, and we're going to hear a trio of guests from my buddy Jack Alberson's podcast, The Jack Alberson Song Story, also available at backtothelight.net. We're going to hear him talking to, very briefly, Alan Sparhawk of Low, Robert Poss of Band of Susans, and Memphian Ben Ricketts. All right, buckle up, y'all, and take it away, Brendan. For those of you that listened to part one and enjoyed the absurdity of it, well, too bad. Be prepared for seriousness. December 7th, the two-way radio episode. Educator Kate Crowder's dreams come true. (laughs) Well, let's let's talk about two-way radio some specifically and like... I, the, the place I started with Andrew was $5 cover. And I asked him this question. I'll ask you the same. Um, what did you think when we first got involved in that project? Where, where, what were your expectations? What did you think was going to come out of it? You know, I, I don't know. I think, um, I think like expectation wise, I tried to keep my expectations pretty low. I mean, I felt pretty, um, it was pretty astonishing that like they wanted us to be a part of it or me to be a, you know, in the first place, that was sort of a weird, um, (laughs) I was like, wait, what? Um, well, it was kind of an enhanced experience for you because not only was the band (laughs) in the show, but like you were, you were actively like a, a star. So you were participating in scenes that the band wasn't even involved in. Yeah. It was super weird. Um, it was super weird. You know, it was a lot of, that was a lot of pressure, but at the same time, I guess everybody as a kid, like has those weird fantasies. Um, and I don't know, I mean, yours was probably to be a musician and mine wasn't, it was actually like, I'm hope that like one day somebody comes up to me and is like, Hmm, 
you're so interesting that like let's let's make a let's make a TV show and want it to be about you. And that actually happened. <laughs> And I guess not a lot of people like that's a weird, uh, weird fantasy that I had as a teenager. And um, I'm happy to say that uh, that came true. Um, and, you know, I'm glad for it. I I actually left uh, left school and studied musical theater um, in college. And then I had children. So, you know, we've got three kids. One of them is now 16 years old, which is crazy. Can you imagine? Wow. Um, no, I know <laughs> he hadn't seen us in a while, but he is old and much taller than me, almost taller than Corey. So, uh, the, wild. it is wild, but, um, I transitioned, you know, from thinking I wanted to do theater to finding a love of working with kids. Um, and, so I started teaching and I was pretty sure like that wasn't going to be in the cards, you know, <laughs> I think that he, when Craig Brewer called me, I, I had just had the second baby. So that was, it was pretty crazy that it was going to happen after I had decided to have kids and not, not do that anymore. And then right after that, we win the Memphis pops thing and we get the studio time and Craig and uh, Scott comes on board because I guess I guess we hit it off during five dollar cover. <laughs> I, yeah, I, guess I, we did. I would definitely. I guess we did. We did. I I I really liked. Uh, I really liked Scott. I you know I thought he was super still, talented and yeah. Yeah, I still do too. He's, Sorry, I don't. He's I not. Like yeah, he's this. not dead or anything. <laughs> You're dead to me. No, he is a he's an awesome person and uh, nothing but love and respect there. And it was a real pleasure to get to work with him on $5 cover. And it was almost so much a pleasure. I think that he, you know, offered us that opportunity. And so like, why would we turn that down um, to have a name or just have a, a talent like Scott Bomar want to invest that level of time, attention and talent into our work? Um, you know, we, I think we all agree that was going to do nothing but enhance the product that came out. And I, I really feel like it did. I love the Memphis Pops uh, concert. It's the only time in my life I've been crowned. You know, I've, I'm a weird person. So I was not like a homecoming queen or anything like <laughs> um, <laughs> nothing like that. So that was like my one chance, you know, where I got to stand on stage and I got crowned for something that I like, I think is actually cool. And um, so that's, that's, that's good. I do remember, you know, Andrew talked about it a little bit. Um, it's funny because the the Magic Kids or the Barbaras at that time they were right, our, right. They were a real competitor. Can I just tell you, like, I probably listen to their album every day. I really love that band and I really love that album. And sometimes I feel guilty um, that we won that contest. Is, is that bad to say? I'm like, Ooh, oh they no, should have won. won. And they <laughs> they won the other prize, which was arguably just as good. I th I mean, some kind of. PR package or something. I forget what it was. They did. They, they, they definitely were, were very deserving of, of anything that they got. That's super talented. But I, I do remember um, that was back in the time where during my day job, I had access to hundreds of computers. Um, should I be even sharing this on a podcast? Andrew's going to laugh at me. Um, I, I guess it's not technically cheating because, I mean, I, I also know 
lots of people in my day job. And so in addition to rallying all of our friends and our the people that routinely came to our shows, I also rallied all of these people out in the suburbs. Um, and I had a moment where my boss um, encouraged me to do this. And we got everybody in a school building to log in <laughs> to to the Memphis uh, to the Memphis Pops website and vote for Two A Radio. Um, oh, nice! And you, you could I, vote. I didn't twice. know about this. I know. I've never told anyone this before. So, <laughs> um, <laughs> Bennett Foster and the Magic Kids, you guys are amazing, and I love you. And I'm really sorry. I, I well, guess that's not that's not how um, we won the the prize. That's just how we got on no, on the show. That's true. That's how we got onto the bill. So I. I really, yeah, I worked hard and I don't normally, um, I don't normally try to work. I try not to have the two worlds intercede, if you will, wow. you know. I didn't know the but, amount of effort that went on to get that done behind the scenes. I don't know why. I don't know what came over me. I normally just think like, okay, what will be, will be. And, you know, let's just go out and do our best. We could post about it on MySpace <laughs> or Facebook. It was MySpace back right. then. But like, you know, um, no, that particular time, like I was all in. I really wanted to win that money to record. And um, only because I knew that the culmination of the, you know, well, we were together for like a decade. We had some songs that I really loved um, and wanted to hear as big production numbers. You know, like I said, I tend to think big. And so in my mind, I'm hearing like I'm hearing that pet sounds. I'm hearing the, you know, the Phil Spector wall of sound um, on some of these and knowing that we have the talent behind it. And I not me personally, I'm sorry, you know, like the the nine of y'all and just wanted to make sure that we were capturing that. And I feel like. At the end of the day, we were 100% successful. Um, and, okay, here's another thing that I would not share normally, but I'm going to tell you. Uh, I don't know why. Uh, but I, since we recorded that album, like, this is 12 years ago now. I listened to that album almost every day. Like, that's, is that, sh- that's like a weird thing. Oh, wow. I don't know. Um, is that true? You've listened to this almost tr- for that's shocking to me because I didn't, I lost it for a significant mm-hmm. amount of time and, and only recently found uh, my copy of it on CD, which is, I guess, how this whole process of putting it out got started as I got in touch with you guys after I found the CD. Yes, that was, that was my resolve is that, you know, after everything shook out and maybe some things or some aspects of it didn't work out, what was meant to be was meant to be. And I love the place that we all ended up, or at least I love the place that I've ended up. Um, in my, my professional career and, you know, in my family life. So, um, but how great, you know, some people have photo albums and some people have, you know, they may look back or, you know, do time hop or whatever in their social media. I go back to that album, um, because it really does tell a story of an important time in all of our lives. And, um, you know, if nothing else, I, was okay with the idea that nobody was ever going to hear it because I feel like that was something that, you know, I feel like that was something we did for us and, um, and, and it's ours and, you know, nobody can take that away. There's, there's not like a, there's no legal decree that can keep you from listening to your own recording. So it's like a diary that you can look at and listen to and, 
you know, when you listen to something for so long, you, I think I've got a, I've got a really deep appreciation and that's, I, I, I don't know if that's like, uh, I'm not, I don't mean it from an arrogant place either. You know, like I'll listen to it and be like, wow, that, that riff that JD came up with, you know, you can appreciate it even after the fact. And maybe at the time it wouldn't have been something that I was noticing before. Yeah. Yeah. It's like a deeper, a deeper love affair with the album that is coming out on December 11th. And I just couldn't be more excited, I guess, to share that with people.
September 28th, hands down. JD's neighbor John Forbes browses grocery store shelves with Steve Albini. Terrence Demore was going around doing like a promotional interviews on radio stations, and uh, a friend of mine who worked at a, one of the was a DJ at one of the college stations said, "Hey, um, Thurston Moore just told me that Sonic Youth is coming to town and your band's opening up." I said, "Oh, I didn't know that." <laughs> and so, um, and so I called up the venue because I mean, at that time they were pretty big. You know, they were really big. Yeah. Know? And so I called up the venue and said, "Hey, um, yeah," I told them who I was. Said, "Hey, uh, heard that um, we're supposed to play," and said, "Yeah, you know, like yeah, you guys are on the bill." And so the Jesus Lizard was the opening band you know the middle band and albini was doing sound for them and i think it was like between their goat and head record okay you know somewhere between those two records um that he was running sound for them and then like um and we hit it off we hit it off with the lizard really good and uh we hit it off with albini and albini goes hey you guys ever want to come up to chicago and record i'd like to do something and so we did and um that's why we would come up here to record Okay, and that's what eventually brought you. What that's kept a, you here? That's eventually what kept me here. I, you know, I, you know, I had a great time when I'd come up here, and I thought, well, what the hell, I'll just stay up here. You know, my first uh, extended visit to Chicago was the exact same story as yours, recording with Steve Albini at the, at his like. It was right when he first opened, like electrical, I think, like what he has now. Mm-hmm. This would have been like 1999 or something like that. Right. Um, I did a like. We did a like a week long record with Steve in Studio B. Um, I'm always interested to talk to people who have worked with him and see what their impressions of him are, because I think like the idea of like what Steve is like, like people always think he's like this big, you know, oh, he's like a big jerk or whatever. Mm-hmm. And my experience with him in person is that he's not at all. No, I really enjoyed it. You know, like uh, we did the last Mount Shasta record. We did several Mount Shasta records with him. And the last one we did, we did it over at Electrical Audio. I was living... I listened electric- to some of that this morning, actually. Oh, okay. Yeah. I was lis- I was living in Electrical Audio while it was uh, being constructed. Oh, wow. I was like the um, the night watchman, you know, and... Uh, How long were you, were, you, were you around? When was... what? When was that? Shit, it was maybe about 97 or so. Yeah. Like the summer of 97. Because when we were there... Because I lived there for about four months, it seemed like. When we were there, we were told that the A studio had just opened up. Like the B studio had been like running for like a year or something, but he had just opened the A studio up like a month or two before because Nine Inch Nails had been in there. I was living there when um, (laughs) when they would come in, you know, and it sort of amazed me because, you know, like I thought, okay, you know, like uh, when bands would come in, everybody would order like Indian food or, you know, they'd order nice food. And I yeah. thought, okay, well, that, uh, there was an Indian place like right on the corner there. Right. Right. Yeah. So, you, we ordered there like two or three different times. <laughs> so, you know, like all the poor punk rock bands would eat like Kings. And I thought, okay, well, nine inch nails is coming in. God, who knows what they're going to eat like. And they ate Burger King. Oh yeah. Yeah. That's, that's, that's industrial. Uh, man. Right. <laughs> um, uh, but so, oh well anyway you know like we would record i i, I always liked recording with him um you know like yeah, we, was, we were working on the record and like if i would have um if i would i was doing my vocals it seemed like and i was i was having a problem for some reason you know just having a problem getting my head around things or just you know calming down enough to get things going so um a lot of times if i was bored or you know felt like i'd hit a wall he and I would go over to, there was a Jewel grocery store. Yeah. And I just like, 
I like when I go out of town, I like going into a different town and looking at grocery stores just to see what sort of food people eat in different towns. Oh gosh, me too. You know, I, I'm just curious about that, you know, like, especially like in other parts of the country. I like seeing the little regional brands and exactly, exactly, you know, and so I could find, I would, I would get, I would get bored, go over to the grocery store and uh, he would follow me over there and we would just silently walk up and down aisles, you know, and uh, I had a great time doing it. That's, that's producing right there. (laughs) Although he wouldn't let you call it that probably. What's that? Producing. Doesn't I guess I guess not. You <laughs> He's know? got that weird issue about not yeah, calling it producing. Like, yeah, people have weird semantic issues. Yeah, I don't <laughs> everybody know. does though. But I mean, he was awesome to us too. I mean, I remember what he bought. He bought me Indian food one time when I was broke, and you know, taught me how to make uh, lattes on his fancy coffee thing. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, like um, when I was in dirt, we we needed to buy some T-shirts, and I. Didn't have, I was like $300 short, and I said to somebody up here who was a friend of his, like, ah, you know, I've got to make some T-shirts, and I'm $300 short. And I said, well, you know, ask Steve. He'll loan it to you. And <laughs> I said, oh, you know, I didn't want to add, you know, borrow money, but he loaned me $300. But at the bottom, you know, like where the check, you know, like where it writes what it's for? The memo line. The yeah. memo line. He wrote blowjobs in there. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Yeah, and so I... I lived in a really gay part of Atlanta at the time. I went to this <laughs> bank and I had to cash the check. Ugh. And the teller just looked at me for about 30 <laughs> seconds. I have written jokey things and memo lines in checks before, but I've never gone that far. <laughs> I haven't either. <laughs> the tone is in the fingers. Thank you. 
thank you, thank you, thank you. October 5th, Big Stupid Steak. Culinarian Kelly English gives Tony Parker the Spurs. A couple more things I want to ask you about, and then I'll let you go. Um, first thing is kind of a famous, a legendary incident in Memphis uh, during the <laughs> NBA play. You know what I'm going to ask about, don't you? Yeah. <laughs> during the... And I think this might have been the moment when you were solidified as a Memphian, my friend, when when your restaurant legendarily turned away NBA superstar Tony Parker. Tell, right. tell me tell me what happened there. So that got so blown out of proportion, man. That was crazy. So the story that came out was that Tony Parker tried to come to Restaurant Iris in the middle of the NBA conference finals, and I turned him away. Okay. That is not... <laughs> That is not untrue, but, but what happened was what happened. So the way that sounds like is that he walked up to the front door and I put my hand out and said, no, sir, you're a spur, like get out of here. <laughs> but what happened was his people called the restaurant and said, do you have room for, for um, uh, uh, Tony Parker and Ava Longoria to come have dinner? Dude, of course, I want Edville Longoria to come have dinner. Like, come on. Anyway, they called. They asked the hostess. We had a table available that we offered to them. And then they said they also need to have a bodyguard at another table, and he won't be eating. Okay? We have 12 tables at Iris. I don't – I can't do that. So we said no. And I wasn't even part of this discussion. I had no idea that this was even occurring. And – Someone, it got out somehow, I think one of our, our customers overheard our hostess talking and, and saying no, and it got out that Tony Parker wanted to come in, and we didn't let him in. So Chris Verno, it was, it was a friend of Chris Vernon, uh, t- uh, tweeted at me and said, can you confirm or deny that you denied service to Tony Parker? And I turned to my hostess. And I was in the middle of cooking and I said, did Tony Parker try to come in and we, we didn't get him in? And she said, yes. So I just responded confirmed on Twitter. Okay. <laughs> That's all I did. That's it. And then it exploded. I, I have never, my, my phone just started to melt. I ended up on sports center. Um, I always thought that I'd be on sports center for my athletic ability, but that's, that's not how that happened. Um, <laughs> And, uh, and yeah, it was just, and then he got interviewed and he was like, this dude's a liar. This didn't happen. And I think it's very, I think it's very plausible that Tony Parker's manager would make a phone call on his behalf without his knowledge. I think that that's very plausible. So, uh, anyway, uh, much ado about that. (laughs) It was nuts, man. We, we had phone, we had fake reservations made from texas for like six months we had to we had to disable our reservations for people from texas because they were making fake ones it was it was crazy what did you learn about about not only memphis media but just like the uh the you know the public like and their affection uh for you and the restaurant because of this uh because of this incident i'll tell you we got busy um (laughs) We, we ended up getting booked out uh, for like every night for, for three months after that. Um, and I did learn that in general, I have, I have a, a friend that's a national sports writer that does not live in Memphis. 
And I texted him and I said, what, I mean, this isn't true. What, what everybody's saying isn't true. Uh, and he said, man, this, this, is, this is good news uh, or this is good for news. And uh, you're just going to have to ride this wave because there's nothing, nothing, nothing anybody can do for you now. It's like, all right. So that's what I learned is that uh, if something is, is good for a soundbite, the, the news will not stop it. Yeah, there's no such thing as bad publicity, right? Nope, I won't be opening a restaurant in San Antonio anytime soon. September 2nd, Horrible with Purpose. Baron Ross Johnson reveals the origins of his superpower. I know people will be tuning off now if they're even tuned in. It's going to be painful. <laughs> when somebody says, I'm going to be honest with you, you know, they're going to lie. The desire to drink was removed. He struck Sidious Stone. Ross Johnson struck Sidious Stone. In the fall of 78, Alex asked me if I wanted to go to Austin and play with him. And I said, yeah. But then I checked with my girlfriend, who more or less maintained my social calendar and had run off most of my friends. And uh, she sort of controlled me. <laughs> It's it's rather funny. She said, "Well, you can, well, you can go ahead and go to Austin or play with who you want to, but just remember that if you do, I'll start having sex with all your friends." What she was doing anyway. So, <laughs> um, Diane, sorry uh, if you're listening. I'm pretty sure you're not. Um, but that was uh, so. Anyway. Diane left town in January of 79. The first place I headed was Old Zenny's on Madison, and I ran into Alex, which uh, there were, you know, there were like two or three places to go where you could meet Procope Gardens. I think, well, I think they closed by late 70s, but Old Zenny's or Zenny's, because there wasn't a new Zenny's at that point. Either right. Zinni's or uh, I want to say Bombay Bicycle Club, but the uh, uh, the the place that has turned into the Blue Monkey. It was it was it was known. Well, I can't. Even, sorry, there goes there goes the senior memory loss thing. Is it is it just age related memory loss or early onset dementia? We shall find out, or maybe not. Um, but. Anyway, I ran into him and uh, a guy named Gus Nelson, who later became Gustavo Falco. Uh, of, and they told me they were starting a new band called the Panthers. So I, I told this story, and I'll tell it again. Yeah. So I auditioned for the band playing uh, to a Buddy Holly record, Peggy Sue, on a four mica table, just hand drumming. So I, I was in the band. And so Panther Burn started in January 79. We, we practiced for about a month and then started playing at this cotton loft uh, at 96 South Front. And we did that a few times. And 
and um, I, I do have I, I do have a book coming out yes uh, that should be published at the end of this month September to 2020 by Space Case Records who has wasted and lost a lot of money on records they've done with me in recent years but uh, the title is uh, called Baron of Love colon Moral Giant and that usually gets a pretty strong reaction from old girlfriends yeah moral giant <laughs> so Baron of Love I didn't know you had a book yeah, coming out at yeah, all I do. That's, they, that's perfect timing for me to have you on yes, the show I'm, I'm promoting kind of... something oh my god I've I, I've got merch, except it's not here yet. <laughs> oh, now you've sold it. <laughs> You're right, I have. Uh, I always sell things. I've been told. And uh, experience has borne that out. So, anyway, uh, Panther Burns got started, and then the Randy Band. Um, Randy Shirto. Noticed a band called Hero playing at at this place called the Well, which which had been known by various names: Detroit Rock City, the Mouse Trap, the Library. I'm going to the Library, and it and it, it was a pretty rough place. Um, but they Randy talked the owners uh, Frank and Jackie Duran into booking local bands so that sort of started the scene so and he had the randy band so we used to do a lot of uh, double bills with them and also with the uh clits who were really the first i guess you could call punk rock band they formed in spring of 78 so and they were uh so the panther burns are certainly not the first even though people say, oh, they were the first, but no, no. And, you know, and I can't really say what we were doing was punk rock, but uh, but Chilton had uh, spent a year in Manhattan uh, Feb from February 77 to December 77. And so he came back, and he was, I think, excited by the lowering of, standards um so and he was looking for non-musicians quote unquote to play with and so tav and i and the late eric hill who played a korg mini synth that that um we would borrow from sam phillips thank you knox phillips for letting us borrow it over and over and return it with beer poured in it and thrown down steps and <laughs> um, <laughs> so uh, what I think what excited me about punk rock and I did like some of the music but was just the like I said the lowering of standards so the Panther Burns wanted to the freedom of access yeah, the freedom of access to yeah, because with the real music biz dying here um with stacks in 1975, it it sort of cleared the deck because people either uh, stayed and got jobs doing something else, or else moved to Nashville <laughs> or Los Angeles, um, mostly to Nashville. 
and um, I can remember going to some discos here in town with with some teenage um, female friends. Let's put it that way, um, and they would hire drummers to play along with the disco stuff. So that's really where uh, you know a lot of drummers in town that 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 was their only in come playing along uh to uh uh disco uh, records in straight and gay bars so so was it it was at these early panther burns gigs this is sort of where you developed your your skill as a talker or or, or like a ranter yeah is that yeah. is that what yeah, you would that, say um chilton um well because Tab and I were non and Eric, well, Eric Hill had did, did have piano lessons. I think as a child, but um, there would be a lot of tuning problems. There would be a lot of uh, breaking of strings. Tab Tab would Tab would break strings, and so during those times, somehow I discovered a. a that I like to punish people on, you know, give me that microphone. So Alex, we usually just had one mic that would go through and a, a big guitar amp. So he started giving me uh, that. He said here. Um, and so I just started uh, jabbering away and, uh, and, and, and I actually got some laughs. So, I've always hated stand-up. You know, people said, you ought to do stand-up. I said, no, I don't want to do stand-up. I do sit-down, you know. So, um, and my son, a few years ago, in his early 20s, he sort of floored me. He said, Dad, have you always been an extrovert? And I just said, what? Because I really wasn't until I got a microphone in my mouth. And um, so if you're going to blame anybody, blame Tav's string breaking and Alex Chilton's <laughs> indulgence with the microphone. So he thought I could do something, some, some, some sort of spoken word thing on flies on Sherbert. So uh, that, that's how Baron of Love came about and uh, we did it um, in in the morning at Arden Studio B, I believe, August sixteenth, nineteen seventy nine, which of course is a rather historical date. And it was just two years since since Elvis Aaron had shuffled off his mortal coil. So that was sort of a for me a you know just kind of code for it for Elvis, and so. I just took it from there. Then I'm not sure where it. And so, hence the book title, Baron of Love, uh, my most well known, if say there are any known, uh, I, I won't say song because I'll, I mean, to me, it's all the same uh, piece of, it, it, you know, I don't see myself as. Is like, oh, I'm I'm going to do a new record, so I've got a I'm going to think about 
doing something different. I mean, to me, it's all the same performance. It's, it's all the same style. <laughs> there really has been no progress. <laughs> Perhaps there's been some de deterioration, if anything. December 14th, Threesome. Solid State Warrior Roger Manning cameos with Davy Jones. And rocker Eric Dover dives into the snake pit. Another thing that I that I think is kind of uh, hilarious is actually that I know you and Herrick uh, were in the Brady Bunch movie backing up Davy Jones, and <laughs> and I am a, I'm a massive Monkees fan. The Monkees are the reason why I got into music as as a kid. Uh -huh. um, so I'm curious. I mean, I guess one, how did you guys get that gig? And two, um, you know, just I'm curious if you're as big a Monkees fan as I am. Yeah, I'll answer that. That last question first. Um, so when I so I went to high school with Andy, and uh, then um, with no plans of continuing working together after high school, I went to Southern California to attend music school, and Andy stayed up in North and began playing in all kinds of bands in uh, Northern California, and we stayed in touch uh, via mixtapes for each other. Um, and it was really an incredible time of sharing, you know, because we were now um, interacting with different communities than we had in high school. So I'm getting turned on to all this music I've never heard. He's getting turned on to a bunch of music he wanted to share with me. And we would, uh, con you know, continue to stay in touch that way. Uh, really, really, that was it. And I'll never forget, um, he sent me one time a mixtape that, uh, included two or three monkey songs, um, all of which, uh, one or two of which I, I knew, and, and a couple others I did not. And what he didn't know is that I just met a kid down in college who was rabid for the monkeys and was turning me on to all kinds of B sides and rare cuts that I'd never heard. Um, and I was just falling in love with all of it and discovering, you know what incredible producers they used, what incredible songwriters they used, how incredibly talented on their own they were. They weren't just teen pinups of the day on, on the latest Tiger Beat magazine. Um, and I couldn't wait to play Andy on my mixtape, the monkey songs I had heard. And so I only bring it up because it's arguably one of the ways that we stayed connected, one of the ways that we knew we shared this kind of music foundationally in spite of whatever trends were going on, you know, in 1986, that would have been. Um, and uh, that was the year the monkeys uh, reunion tour year. Yeah. Yeah. Which I didn't see any of them, uh, but um, yeah, you know, it was, it, I, it was, it was in the air for, so I was, to speak. I was seven, but I did see it. I saw the 1986 reunion tour. Oh, there you go. <laughs> so, um, you know, again, uh, very much what Jellyfish did was an extension of being influenced by the monkeys as much as anybody else. Um, and yes, they were another prefab Don Kirshner made boy band, but I'm fine with boy bands as long as the content is impeccable. <laughs> yeah. I, don't, I don't care how you got there. I don't care how you got to the finish line is, is the final product moving me or not. And uh, the monkey's catalog is pretty damn impeccable 
there's very some, few weak links in there, in my opinion. And it's some of the finest songwriters in the world. Absolutely. Yeah. So there you have it. Um, part two was, I believe Eric and I were courting a manager at the time. He became our manager for Imperial drag and he represented several other artists. And one of those artists, they got the call to put together Davy Jones's backup band. Um, they had some connections with uh, studio people, and they were asked, "Hey, you know, you're a musician we trust. Would you like to be on stage as part of Davy Jones's backup band?" Well, sure, I would, but I'm going to need to find the other musicians for the other instruments. Okay, great, you go do that. We give you permission to do that. And I think through the management connection, he reached out to Eric and I, um, and that's that's literally the only reason we got that. Uh, and it, you know, it it, it was a, a fun day of uh killing time on the set with some fun and creative people who we who we didn't know and then you know you were literally up on stage filming the davy jones segments you film the same segment like 10 times so they can shoot it from all different angles just like a video and um you know i think we said hello to him and that was the extent of that and it's all super uh it's all planned out. There's no, there's no, there's no, there's no time to socialize and and uh, involve in hero worship. <laughs> but uh, yeah, fun, fun memories. And I, apparently, you can see Eric and I for a brief two seconds in some of the shots. Yeah, yeah, you can see that. There's they're on YouTube. Oh, okay. <laughs> Hilarious.
Somewhere around that same time, you also get involved with the Slash's Snake Pit project. Um, how, how did all of that come about? Uh, that came about um, pretty weird, actually. We were rehearsing uh, at a place called Mates Rehearsal, which is basically the Guns N' Roses rehearsal studio. Uh, we were rehearsing. We were trying out drummers. And in this case, it was a fellow named Mark Danzeisen who had known that Slash was looking for a singer. And I was sleeping on couches at the time, having just moved out. And he goes, you should really try out for a Slash's thing. And I asked Roger about it and what he felt about it, because we were very knee deep in what we were doing also. And he gave me his blessing. So I tried out. Um, I went up to Slash's house. Uh, he played me some music, played me a song. I wrote some lyrics, and that turned out to be the first single, Beggars and Hangers On. Wow. that's And it was just that quick? Uh, yeah, it was a whirlwind. It was absolutely insane. Yeah, okay. before I knew it, Slash was calling me going, Hey, man, what's going on? I'm like, come on, this isn't Slash. Yeah, but it was. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and then, um, you know, that obviously with slash, it's kind of, it's a, it's a heavier band, a much heavier sound still. Did you approach your, your vocals differently for that project? Obviously you're seeing a little harder. Oh, absolutely. It's a, it's a apples and oranges. Jellyfish requires a lot of finesse and, uh, uh, you know, ensemble singing where you're singing together as a unit. And with Slash, it was more, I mean, he wanted something hard-edged, uh, more blues-based, perhaps, uh, kind of in the pantheon of all your uh, your great rock singers, you know. So he put me in a room in the studio, and once a day, we would record vocals for a song, and I would literally write the lyrics on the spot. Um, you know, no TV in a room by myself with a, a notepad and no internet and we got it we got it done in about uh two and a half weeks i think wow that's quick by um you know major standards i think well it's definitely very quick compared to making a guns and roses record sure <laughs> but um you know we we really wanted immediacy we wanted something raw and powerful and uh to go over it with a fine tooth comb really didn't make any sense. It was really more about working hard to get uh, the takes that we wanted and the energy that we felt was appropriate. I was never a huge Guns N' Roses fan at, you know, at that time. So I never listened to that record until um, recently. And I was really surprised at how much I liked it. I mean, just, and I think a lot of that had to do with your vocal melodies and stuff. It's a, it was a really surprisingly melodic record. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, I'm always trying to aim for melody in no matter what I do. Um, and, you know, Slash helped um, help things along. You know, he was good with suggestions. <laughs> like I said, we were working so quick. Um, so if it sounded good to our ears, we kind of went with it. Yeah, sometimes that's, you know, that you can't beat that approach. Um one more thing I want to ask you about before we get to the Licorice Quartet. Um, 
and that is of course um the fact that you were in alice cooper's band for a few years um how did that come out of the slash uh, situation or, or how how does how does all of that come about uh well really in a roundabout way um Eric Singer, the place with Kiss, I, I'd met Eric Singer about the same time that I got into Slash. And he introduced me to Ryan Roxy, who wound up being the guitar player in the second incarnation of Snake Pit. And we just, um, you know, we kept in touch. We uh, started a, a glam band in Hollywood called um, Glam Nation. And we were playing, you know, playing the strip and playing all these clubs and packing it out and having a, a grand old time. Um, but Roxy also plays with Alice Cooper. So I kind of got into the Alice Cooper camp through Ryan and Eric. They kind of basically recommended me. And I know you ended up co-writing some songs with Alice for one of his records. Is that right? What, what, what was he like as a, as a collaborator? What was that process like? Uh, well, first of all, I love Alice Cooper. I love all of his music, and I think he's a a dynamite person um, to be around him. He's so personable. And it was also uh, kind of the same approach as with Slash, where you're just bouncing ideas, you know, off of each other, um, and then seeing what he thought, uh, what he liked, you know, basically. So we demoed uh, a lot of songs at my house and we did wind up changing a lot of things once we got into the making of the record. Um, you know, maybe a few little parts, we'd cut some fat, that sort of thing. Um, but it became a, a huge collaboration once we all kind of got together. Ryan, Roxy uh, contributed some music. Um, so, yeah. I'm I'm very happy with it. I, I haven't listened to it in years, but it's a good memory. I bet. I bet. I bet you guys played some crazy shows. We played some fantastic shows. I think one of the highlights uh, with Alice Cooper for me was we played Wembley, and I Brian can't even May. Imagine. <laughs> Brian May came and sat in with us. Oh my gosh! And and uh, he was he's another like you know, somebody I completely idolize and he turned out to be just the most friendly down to earth person. And we played God save the queen in three part guitar harmony. How cool is that? That's is, is that somewhere on YouTube? Can you find that? Uh, I don't know. I haven't looked for any of those shows oh, man. during my tenure. I'm going to try to look that up after we get off here. Yeah. I even got to hold uh, the Brian May guitar for a while and, that, you know, that's pretty cool, man. Yeah. December 21st, We're Adults. JD's old friend and ham crafter, Tommy Bateman, discusses their collaboration in the Passport Again. You, I don't know if we played shows much before you got involved, but at some point, you and I reconnected um, and we started sort of collaborating in that project, the passport again. Yeah. And, or, originally it was just that I was just the, the guitar player in the passport again. And like, we were going to keep the projects separate. Like I was going to have 
I think I might have still been calling it Johnny Romania, or maybe I was transitioning into like using. We my... played a couple of shows together. The passport again, playing with Johnny Romania. Yeah, that was one of the the loudest uh, non national touring bands that ever played at the one of the loudest shows at the Tomato Head. The Johnny Romania Passport again. You know, I've dual, heard that that's dual bill that we owned that distinction somehow and. <laughs> I yeah, find that, I, find that I don't think it was favorable. I, I think when they say loudest, I think they mean noisiest, maybe. Or yeah. uh, no, I I didn't take it as a compliment then, and, <laughs> don't, and don't now. Right? Yeah, I I I mean, I, I can take it not as a compliment, or not take it as a compliment, and still wear it as a bit of a badge of honor. Oh, uh, sure. At the same time, sure. But anyway, uh, yeah. So the passport again. You know, you and I were again trying to sort of maintain some distance, but it ended up turning into because that's what it was most natural as was a, a collaboration collaboration with you and I as the two primary songwriters, and I think it was really successful. And I still listen to that EP, uh, which is kind of long for an EP. Hold on to the memory uh, and enjoy it, and think. You know, that's one of all the things that I've been involved in, all the uh, recordings I've been on. It's one of the one of the ones that sounds most like what I was trying to do at the time of anything I've ever done, and I still like listening to it. And I and I and hopefully in the next year or so we can get it uh, digitally distributed so that other people can go back and listen to it, and so I can easily listen to it whenever I want to as well. But, yeah. Uh, I want to. Yeah. I want to. I want to do the B sides too. I'm still. I'm still. Still very proud of the stuff we did there, and uh, it kind of. Uh, it, it. We didn't feel like we were trying to be anything specific, and we didn't really fit in anywhere other than at the Pilot Light in Knoxville, which is an amazing venue that will just let you do whatever you want. Uh, and you know, you can play, and if people come, great. If not that's okay too. Uh, you know, it's a nonprofit now. I mean, Uh, I definitely think of the pilot light as our home. Don't get me wrong, but I think we definitely fit in at the red rose where we played several times. And I think that we fit in at the high tone where we played a few times at least. Um, you know, um, you know, you know, we've had this, we've had this conversation off the air, you know, how I feel about some of it and you know what, where my regrets about the band lie. Um, but I agree with you that um, I'm super proud of it still to this day. And like, yeah, I, I totally, I hope we get that stuff out next year because not only, I mean, just because I think it's good stuff that, you know, maybe a handful of people would like to hear, but also, I mean, it would just be a nice, you know, uh, you know, it'd be a nice way to put a bow on it. I agree. I agree. Let's do it. Let's, we can make this happen. We're adults.
portraits Concentration not for subject But for its proper execution Now all is reversed My mind never wanders But from concept to concept to concept to concept to September 7th, Modifiers Chronicles 2. Linksman Chuck Roast grabs his sticks and gets in the zone. Well, first of all, what? how long were you in the band? What was that around? That was 1985, 1986? Yeah, it was about 86, 87, I do believe. Okay, okay. Do you remember the first time you saw or heard of the band out when there in LA? I, uh, I had never seen them. Um, live or anything uh, the first time i heard of him when uh, i spoke to uh billy the bass player because uh the band i was in uh had broken up and they needed a drummer so i uh, just went down a, a few blocks to uh, billy billy bass's studio and um we started uh playing so so billy was playing with bob and milford before yes, you were and dave Oh, okay, right, right. And then how long, you were only in the band, it was like two years that you guys played together? it was together. like a um, year and a half. We we did uh, a few shows. The The initial shows were really good. We were getting good reception uh, from, uh, you know, from the clubs that we were playing at. And then we just rehearsed a lot. Um, and then uh, we were recording... At the end there in '87, I do believe, and in the middle yeah, of you that, you did some home, some home recording and some studio time. Yeah, um, right? I think that was like '80, late '85, early '86. <clears throat> I had just gotten a uh, a TAC Porter One studio cassette, four track cassette, and I had taken it to um, rehearsal. <laughs> Let me. Uh, Let's give this a go. And uh, that's the one I shipped off to you. Yeah, some of that stuff sounds really great. Like, uh, I had never heard a couple of those modifier songs before, and it's, you know, just fantastic to find, to get a hold of them, especially Neat Depression was a song yeah. that um, I didn't I didn't even oh, really? know existed until you sent it to me. Yeah, that was yeah, like yeah, our that's punkiest become, song. That's become one of my favorites. That was one of our punkiest songs, Fast, Crazy. <laughs> those guys were great. Was... Was it, um, was part of what attracted you to being in the modifiers? Was it being able to do like a more straight ahead punk rock thing after the, well, I was, uh, I wasn't familiar with uh, their music. We just, uh, you know, I brought my drums upstairs, we laced them up and, uh, we hit it off pretty well. Um, I mean, I kind of grew up on that kind of music. There were more traditional, uh, 
even though they were pretty hard, not, I'm not going to say hardcore punk, but um, rooted in, in the blues, you know, and Bob could just rip it off and uh, Dave uh, was backing up. He was there for a few uh, sessions and then uh, we uh, became a power trio. <laughs> Those live gigs, do you remember, were they, were they still doing lots of uh, live antics at the time? In Memphis, they were they were known for doing lots of stage antics and, you know, theatrical performances. Was that still a part of the show when well, you were uh, in the band? Well, Milford was pretty animated. I mean, he was a great front man. And Bob could just uh, play that guitar. I mean, it, uh, it was a lot of fun playing with both those guys. But as far as antics, uh, Bob... He's always always was a uh, fairly reserved guy, for sure. Uh, off stage, yes, definitely, most definitely. Um, <laughs> yeah, um, I kind of hung out with uh, Milford more only because he uh, played golf. We played golf. Uh, I I never knew that we were over at their pad and uh, Redondo, just uh, hanging out one night, and something caught my eye. I looked at, hey, Milf, you play uh, golf? Yeah, Charles, I play golf. So we, uh, well, we need to get together and get out there. And sure enough, we did. And, uh, you know, it was a uh, foursome. Three of us were, Milford was late. That's the one thing I do remember. And uh, he showed up. I didn't know anything about him. He showed up and he had bell-bottom holy Levi's uh, with red, white, and blue patent leather <laughs> shoes, purple hair. Let's play some golf. <laughs> and we're going, huh? okay, Milford, you probably can't even play. And he got up there first, and man, he thwapped it down the, the middle of the great, uh, fairway there. Well, it turned out he he played college. Wow. You know, Bob played in high school too, and I, yeah, and I I play, and I, I tried several times to get him to you know to pick him back up again, but he never would. Uh, well, uh, you know, we didn't. I, I don't recall doing much with Bob. Bob was pretty much a hermit back then. He was at home. Um, when Melf wasn't working, you know, he worked at a guitar, uh, shop at that time, Gene Lease guitars, uh, right there. In right. Rhino. Right. And, um, I would take my guitars. I play guitar too. Not as well as, as, as Bob, Bob just had a unique, um, tone and sound that he got. Um, but they were always trying new stuff, new amps, new guitars, uh, all that stuff. He had a great sound. Yeah. Why, why did you guys, do you remember why you guys quit playing you know, together? Like in 87? It happened during the recording. Um, who knows? I, I don't remember. It's all a smoky haze, if you know what I mean. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, yeah. one day we we're recording and the next day it was all over. That's, that sounds yeah. like Bob, but yeah. And then, um, I didn't speak to them for a while and I went to their house out in Redondo, and they were gone. Nobody lived at that place. Wow! And that was it. And did you ever hear from from I Milford heard, or any, anybody never after heard from that? Them again. Oh, 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 oh,
November 16th, just wait. Surfer Matthew Cause gets just what he needed from Rick Ocasek. I saw you post on Facebook a really neat story about meeting uh, Rick Ocasek back in the way early days and like trying to get him to produce the first Not A Surf record. Yeah, yeah. That, no, that was, a, that was a, a real fairy tale. So basically what happened is that um, we... You know, we we had this band and we'd made an album uh, for a Spanish label um, who'd gotten really excited by our The Plan single. And so we, we made a whole record and our drummer at the time, Aaron Conti, um, worked at the power station, the studio. And so he got us a, a free, two two nights free over a weekend. And we went in there and knocked most of the record out and finished it at a place called coyote. And so I was sitting on this tape and, you know, wanted somebody to put it out and sent it to some labels. I really loved and got no answer. Um, which is not surprising. You know, sometimes you need more than a tape to get a label's attention. You know, you need sure. to be like drawing, drawing crowds in your hometown, et cetera. And we, we weren't particularly, and I sat on the subway next to or very close to i'd say three seats away mitch easter reading the paper and i really love let's active and really of course really loved rem and his production on on murmur um and chronic town and so i was too nervous i didn't give him a tape and i've regretted it ever since and I got to meet him at a DB show at South by Southwest. And I told him this story. <laughs> he said, you took the other path, man. Who knows what would have <laughs> happened? You should have given me that tape. I was like, I know. <laughs> so, so then, um, then we got a new drummer, Ira. And I'd had this feeling about Ira. I, I sort of waited a little while before asking him to join the band because he was in a couple of bands and, and, you know, drummers who were really hot tickets in their town, as I was in New York, you know, there's no guarantee you're going to hold on to them. And that felt like a waste of time to me if we got a drummer and then lost him. So 
I waited until we had these songs and and we had a kind of kind of a feeling, you know, sometimes you think, all right, I think we're, we're onto something, you know, if we're going to try to make anything happen now, now's the moment. And so he joined and that gave me a little more hustle or a feeling of a hustle. And plus having, having a chickened out on Mitch Easter, I thought next time I see somebody that should get this tape, I'm going to give it to him. And, uh, I was walking we were together, we were walking out of a show at Knitting Factory in New York, and, and uh, Rick was walking in. And of course, I love the cars to death. Um, it's an early super favorite, and my older sister is a big influence on me, one of her early super favorites. And um, and also the production on the on the first Weezer record was still, that was still recent, and that, that record just sounded so good. So I walked up to him, and... and uh, he said, excuse me, um, I have a cassette I'd love to give you. And he was so gracious, very kind, and said, oh, is your phone number on it? All right, well, thank you so much. I appreciate it. He's very, very nice. And, um, you know, I, I I don't want to say I thought nothing of it. I thought a lot of it, but I certainly didn't expect him to call. I just thought this was so exciting I'd given it to him. So that was like, for two weeks, that was like my, uh, you know, my, oh, my God, guys, you'll never guess story to any friend I ran into. Well, a couple of weeks later, I came home and my roommate had this Cheshire cat smile. He said, you should listen to your, um, you should listen to the answering machine. And I did. And it was a message from Rick and, and, uh, saying I'm, I'm, uh, I'm up in the country. Here's my phone number. Please call me. And I did. And he wanted me to come over to his house a couple of days later. And I did. And, um, yeah, as I wrote in a little piece about it, um, I locked my bike to the air. I, I, I missed the pole I was supposed to lock it to. <laughs> it was so um, tripping, really, you know, like in a total fantasy world. It was like a summer evening, probably in the mid-70s, you know, just like heaven, you know, that that somebody I really admired wanted to talk to me about what we did. You know, it's really, you know, I think these are moments when your your brain just is like, save, 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 you know, like screen saving, you know, you know, making a screen recording. Anyway, uh, I remembered all really clearly and, um, went into his house and, uh, met Paulina and she was, she was very kind too. And they, and the two of them just really put me at ease standing in the kitchen. And then we sat down at the table and he made some coffee while I talked to Paulina. And, and I said in this story, and I, this is, it's embarrassing because I'm about to, like pay myself a compliment, but, but how meaningful it was to me is just really, um, really something is that she, while he was making the coffee, she said, he likes your phrasing. And that was, um, it felt like the first time that somebody I wasn't in the bandwidth in the bandwidth, um, had had just said something, anything complimentary, you know. Sure, and and you have to know that that's true because you know anyone to your face will say anything polite, but that that was clearly something that sh- that he had said to her in private. That's a good point. Yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah, maybe I intuited that. Yeah, it just felt really genuine. And um, and so we went downstairs to his studio, which is in the basement. And he said, "So tell me about this tape. What is it?" And then I explained. He said, "Well, listen, you could put it out as it is." I think it's great. So it's a record, you know, you could put it out, but if you ever want to re-record it, uh, I want to produce it and I'll be really cheap. So that was amazing. Um, 
And he said, do you have a record label? I said, nope. And he said, well, stay, stay in touch. You know, do you have a record deal? I said, no. He said, stay in touch. And then a couple of weeks later, um, we played a show at a place called Rebar in New York on 16th Street. And then a guy came called Bobby, uh, Bobby McCain came up to me after the show and said, I work at a label called Number Six. Uh, and I'd heard of Number Six because they put out a Dean Wareham single. And they also had put out um, Imperial... FFRR by Unrest, a record I really loved. Um, so that was super exciting because that hadn't happened. And that was the other dream, you know. So somebody from somebody putting out some good records come up to you after a show and ask you for tape. So that was great. And I gave it to him. And then he called me the next day and said that he'd given it to a colleague of his, uh, Ben Weber, who's now our manager, um, our long, long time manager. And Ben brought it to his boss, who was a guy called Josh Deutsch, who was an A&R guy at Elektra. And um, anyway, the gist was they wanted us to come in and meet them like that day, which we did. And they offered us a deal on the spot, which we kind of, wow. Kind of turned down in a, you know, provisional way. Just, I don't know. It, it, it was a shock. Like I'd always wanted to be on an indie label. So an offer from a major label um, wasn't, quite what we were looking for, but still, you know, kind of great. Um, yeah. And then the funny thing was they said, <laughs> I mean, it's just, it's, it's just fun is that he said, um, this guy, Josh said, so, you know, do you have any, if you do put out a record with us, uh, do you have any ideas about who you'd want to produce it? Because the idea of re-recording it had come up also. And, and plus we, you know, we had Ira as our new drummer, so we kind of did want to re-record it. And we said, uh, well, we'd want Rick Ocasek to produce it. And, and, and he was like, well, good luck. You know, I don't know if you can get him. And I said, no, we, we are, we already have him. I had this idea that sort of sprang from the Nancy Reagan, um, just say no anti-drug campaign. Um, <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. A few years later, I was, I was just thinking about kids and, you know, and I have kids and, and, um, I really think the most dangerous thing about drugs and kids is that it's just bad for their brains, you know? Um, I, you know, I have no opinion on it as an adult and I've, I've done drugs as an adult and I'm, I'm not for or against, um, I don't do them anymore, but, um, but, uh, that's just for my own health. Um, but I always, I was just thinking about that slogan, just say no and how it's just, it's bound to fail, you know, like, you know, if you, if you forbid certain things from teenagers, like, of course they're going to think it's cool and they're going to want to do it. But I thought, how about just say later, you know, like you can do whatever you want as an adult, but your brain is still growing until you're in your early twenties and you can fry some cells. And I know some people who are, who are fried and it's, it's bad. So anyway, I know this is really off kind of off topic, but, but it just had me, that was always in my mind. Like, just, just wait, just, just say later. Um, but then also I was thinking of that phrase, uh, in regards to what it must feel like to be young now and how, you know, adulthood coming on has always been scary, but I just can't, I can't imagine now, you know, I find like, um, you know, like my, my teenager is so much more savvy than I was and so much calmer and knows so much more about so much. Um, but also like, I think we were lucky to be able to grow up slower at our age. 
for, you know, my, my generation and all previous generations, you know? Oh yes. I, I couldn't imagine yeah. if, if going like leaving school and then bringing all of that social media school dynamic home with me and never having a break from it. Yeah. Or right. And, or being, or feeling like you're in a competition, even when you're not at school. Yeah. You know, of course, like when you're with your peer group, there's going to be this feeling of pressure. But but when we were kids, uh, you would leave and then you'd go home and you were free in your own child world, not still getting input about how other people are doing or what they're doing, you know. Yeah. Um, anyway, so it's, it's, it's all it's about all those things. Not the drug one. That's just where the where the phrase came from. It's got nothing to do with the song. Sure. But it's just about life coming at you, you know, and 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 having having some if you can having some patience about it and not you know another day will come uh there's a a term in in meditation of like waiting for the right mind you know like the the right decision will come when the right mind comes and you have to be at peace to to think of an answer to a question you have to be at peace to to make the right decision um so just staying calm and unfortunately, it feels pretty relevant now since we're all just waiting. Yes. And we all have to, if we can, keep keep our hope up, keep our cool, stay positive, stay productive if you can. Don't beat yourself up if you can't. Um, try not to worry. Try to stay happy because you know, your body will appreciate it and we'll pay you back for that kindness. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, um, here I better play hear it. For you. Yeah, yeah, totally. Please. find your place got too many choices are you the only one who doesn't know their way there's so many noises you're gonna be just fine might take some time but you gotta know it's gonna be okay just wait just wait hollow and stressed the worst and the best they say you get just one try but that's just a lie it's a long life time doesn't fly when it feels too big and you can't find your place Got too many choices Are you the only one who doesn't know their way? There's so many noises You're gonna be just fine Might take some time But you gotta know 
It's gonna be okay. Just wait. Love and work and where you live and what you take and what you give. Love and work and where you live, what you take and what you give. When it feels too big and you can't find your place, got too many choices. Are you the only one who doesn't know their way? There's so many noises. You're gonna be just fine. Might take some time, but you gotta know it's gonna be okay. Just wait Just wait Millions of souls They're young and they're old I'm here with you got something to lose slow down and see where it goes yeah man thank you so much you're welcome i have goosebumps a little bit here right oh, now right on man that, that was right awesome on. well thank well, you thank you and i think i think that's an excellent way to close um i think we did well for ourselves here and i can't tell you how much it means to me to have you on the show well, man, thank you, JD. I really appreciate it. Really enjoyed talking and um, I'll, I'll talk to you soon. Take care. And I hope to see you in the live and in person one of these days. Thanks for listening, everybody. Before we go, we'd like to shine a light on the Jack Alberson Song Story Podcast featuring Alan Sparhawk of Lowe, Robert Poss of Band of Susans, and Memphis and Ben Ricketts. I really was thinking about, it's like a, you know, putting together what the the lyrics are and I'm looking at the lyrics and I guess I never really thought about that one in terms of the individual pieces like I, you know, it was it was the song but what went into writing the lyrics for that song um <clears throat> well I'm not a I'm not an intentional writer I mean I don't sit down and go hmm I'm thinking about this today or I've been concerned about my friend going through this today. I'm going to write a song about it or something like that. I mean, it's, it usually is just more, it's more of a subconscious kind of fumbling around with the guitar. You play something, maybe a, a melody come out of your head and you'll sing it or something. Maybe there's a couple syllable or syllables that sound like words, or maybe you have a couple words that fall out and that's kind of the first cue and you think, Oh, that's something there. Or some kind of yeah. phrase. And then it becomes automatic writing where it just yeah. kind of, yeah, phrase and kind of kicks it off, and yeah. you'll, you'll get a, maybe you'll get a little imagery. It'll come along, or a couple phrases, something old, you know, one 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 line that'll come that seems to kind of come from your subconscious or sort of nowhere or whatever will 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 sort of inspire something else, or it'll give you a vision for something else, and so that that's kind of how that song unfolded. I remember, yeah, I remember had the you know the da 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 the dinosaur, dinosaur. Yeah, that, that those fra- that phrase kind of writes itself into that riff, doesn't right? It? And I remember, yeah. I remember when I wrote it. I remember writing that line and thinking, "Wow, this this is just this line's just it's just gibberish. It's just it doesn't mean anything, you know." And I thought, "Well, 
maybe this is just uh you know what what was the McCartney song yesterday or something was it like where like, he's throwing like, breakfast wasn't it the placeholder lyrics yeah I just thought it, I thought which I don't do very often and I thought oh that's funny well those must be placeholder lyrics I guess so <laughs> you know until I come, come with something else you know and and uh so I thought, okay, well, let's see. What do I got to do for a verse here? Okay, there's chords. Okay, that's cool. Maybe, all right. And I think all melody. And I remember the first few lines were, yeah, you were the daughter. And I remember, yeah, I mean, that I don't I don't have a lot of songs that have, like, super strong, consistent, like, oh, yeah, well, this is about... Uh, or a connection to a specific... Memory or this and that. Yeah. But... This one, I don't know. For some reason, this song, as it was writing, for some reason, unfolded to me. So it was there's the phrases that I'm using in there sort of re- reference uh, some things from childhood. Let's see, you, what was it? You were the daughter, and your father flew. You know, like my my father was in the air. You know, was in the air force for a few years when he's young. Some of my earliest memories as a kid were actually being in an airplane. You know, with my you know, I think there were just a couple times when I was very young that my father like rented an airplane and would take us for a flight or something. Cause he was still, you know, he was still a certified pilot and all this stuff. And so I just remember that, that, I, that image stuck with me. So you were the daughter. I'm actually, I don't know. I'm, I'm kind of just sometimes <laughs> I'll blur things around with gender and, and names and things. And to me, I'm, you know, I'm, you were the daughter. I'm, I'm actually more, I'm see that sort of either talking to myself or sort of a character that's sort of a parallel to that reality or something like that. I don't know. I was just sort of like, okay, well, who am I talking to? Yeah. I'm talking to someone, but actually maybe I'm talking to myself, but, but, uh, you know, plus daughter rhymes with father. So, <laughs> uh, so, so, uh, you know, if I, let's, let's see. I don't even Oh shoot. Boy, I'm going to embarrass myself here with not remembering. <laughs> I'm not sure if the, the lyrics online are correct. There's no. the next part. Yeah, you your sister can tell by the back of her hands. Can tell by the back. Yeah, that's so. That's actually me and my brother. <laughs> that's you just a gender swap thing, then. Okay. Me and my brother. They just and and the, the image. I, I I literally remember being. Being. It must have been maybe three. I just remember being in this airplane and and. And looking forward, and then and, and my my mo- mother and father were in the front, and I just remember it, it just being, I don't know, so, so that so that whatever, so that so it's it's really just a, a very fragmented sort of sketch of a moment in memory, yeah. you know. And then the second verse uh, refers to going, you know, uh, when I was nine, we moved we moved to uh, Minnesota and lived on a farm. After expenses and football uh, well, offenses. No more planes. Yeah. Union. Let's see. You stepped on a board and a nail. Oh, yeah. In a foot. You stepped down there. Yeah. Which happened for some reason all the time when I was a child. <laughs> I had at least three or four nails through my feet oh. as a kid because, I, well, yeah, my, my dad was, my dad was sort of a, He's a musician, and uh, he was a former pilot, <laughs> and he was a construction. <laughs> he's a contractor. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, he was a 
a little bit of a hoarder. So he always had like, you know, piles of scrap wood that he would salvage yeah. in some job and be like, Oh, we should keep these. We could use them for a uh, something, you know, and it's like, well, they're just going to end up with a pot on a pile and your children are going to climb on them and get nails to their feet, you know? And, uh, <laughs> and so, somehow yeah. like my dad was a house builder. And so I have the pretty much the same oh, yeah. childhood memories of just random piles of crap. And your, yes, and your house never, your, your own house never actually, Actually, you know, half, half, always half renovated. Right. And it's, and he built a house. And so like when I was a kid, the the whole thing about this album is weirdly personal to me because when, when apparently when I was a baby, my father had built a home, but I guess he didn't build, do something with the, with the way he set up the fireplace. Right. And so the house caught on fire. The house caught on fire when I was a, like a baby. And so like, get out of that, you know, the, my memories of the house are a rebuilt house. Yeah. You know, well, like after the, it's, after it's the fire. <laughs> crazy, crazy that, that things we lost in the fire just has like this primal connection yeah. for me. Yeah, it's terrifying. It is <laughs> terrifying. Actually. Like, wow. It is. Yeah. Oh, that's that, that's just great. I, I, yeah, it's, it is. Ter- yeah, it's, it's, it's a terrifying thing to happen to a family. I the funny thing about the vocals on this, um, and at some point I'm going to spin off a bunch of the individual tracks for you so you can hear how the song is constructed, how it's built up. But we were yeah. doing like heavy, heavy drinking in the studio. It was just Susan, me and the engineer. And I was singing, you know, singing this and it was very emotional. And, you know, the vodka was flowing. And and then I did this whole weird like rap in the middle of it. <laughs> <laughs> which <What>? like, <laughs> which I don't think was never recorded, but I just kind of like started in the instrumental section during the solo, not a rap, but like a, oh I, I, you know, I, rap is the wrong term, like a, you intoned, intoned it. it, like sort of like a preacher, yeah. you know, like a, like a, okay. like a radio, like a television preacher. So forget, forget I said the word rap. That's wrong. Um, <laughs> I would never, never accuse myself of rapping. Um, and I did it. And then, I said, you know, and we did it and I did it. And it was very, it was very emotional, the whole song, even though the funny thing is I had this whole sort of hilarious thing in the middle. But then when the solo was over, I came like right back to this intensely emotional thing. And then I had never thought about putting a harmony on it. And I just said, listen, I want to put a harmony on it. And Susan and, and the engineer were like, oh, God, you know, this guy's drunk. <laughs> he's, he's, you know, talking like, you know, Jerry Lewis and, you know, but I did. And so I just spontaneously in one take, I just like sang this partial harmony, which was very odd. It's something yeah. I normally, normally I would have worked that out, you know, I would have worked out a harmony. So my memory of recording the vocals is, is sort of a contrast between this this very like serious and sad heartfelt song and yet like heavy drinking and this like weird yeah. like preaching in it so i was kind of disappointed when i found they hadn't recorded it because i would love to hear that now i think the very beginning of it may be recorded oh but gosh. i'll i'll check That's it out crazy. when i go to the multi track <laughs> but um it was a very it was a very odd was a very odd session well it's interesting that 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 it I, and i hope this doesn't come off wrong or the way i don't intend it to but it seems like there's in in the methodology of your writing at least at this phase in the band there's a lot of uh it's a premeditated and pretty controlled it seems or methodical maybe is the better word are you talking about the writing of the music or writing of the lyrics or just conceiving the songs it seems like maybe there's a 
not to take yeah, the emotion out of it. But, no, but. you know, the way I was writing in this period, and, and I really continued writing this way. Actually, I still do it now. I start with, I call it improvising into structure. So I'll start with, let's say, usually started with the drum machine pattern. Yeah. And then I would either pull out a bass or pull out a guitar and start playing. And what I played, you know, after very often one or two tries, what I played ended up being the song. And it was something, I guess, I had been, you know, I've been playing bass and guitar since I was 12. I don't know what it is, but I, I had this ability to sort of spontaneously generate material, whether it was a chord progression or like, for instance, in Ice Age, the bass line just was the first thing I just, I just put on a drum machine and I came up with a bass line, which is a really odd bass line. Yeah. It's like weirdly dissonant and chromatic. Um, but then once I had the skeleton of the song, you know, my, my favorite thing to do, and I still do this today, is, you know, record a track and then record the next track without listening to the first track. In other words, overdub without listening to anything but the drum part and then overdub again. And so what you get are, and so I'm relying on my memory of something I've only played once and then I'm recording over it. And then I'm then again, I'm recording over that again with only the memory of what I've just played. So you get all these kind of, you know, accidents and juxtapositions that I probably would never have been smart enough to conceive of had I tried to do it. And I'm surprised at how many Band of Season songs are actually first take improvisations that I then maybe refined a little bit because like I made a mistake, you know, played the wrong note. And so then I, I changed it. Um, but once that skeleton is there, then yeah, the arrangements are really carefully thought out. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I'm trying to, I'm trying to do sort of alchemy in a sense. I'm trying to take simple things and make something that's, that's, you know, greater than the sum of the parts. And I'm trying to do that through, use of overtones and combining certain things. So you start hearing these sort of phantom melodies and, um, you know, other, other things suggest themselves. Um, and I then think I suggestion, think, suggestion's actually a good, that, that would be a good way to describe a lot of the guitar work in band of seasons is I think like from when I'm listening, I hear like there's a straightforward thing. I even think I asked you about that with this song once there's you, you're hearing this thing, but there's like the ghost of something else in there somewhere. And it sort of yeah. makes it less obvious what this progression is. Yeah, there are occasional, there's occasional Ben Asudan song, bro, like I'll hear a distinct harmonica playing at some point. I'm like <laughs> there's no one playing harmonica. It's just, you know, it's just some weird mid-range overtone combination that right. causes this, you know, illusion. Um, and I think that's, when I'm most happy and most proud and most satisfied about, you know, my own work is when stuff like that happens. Like people ask me, so, you know, where's this instrument? And I go, well, that doesn't exist. It's not there. You're, you're hearing the combination of these like two parts and yeah. it's creating something else. And that's, you know, that's similar to the concept of combination tones where you, you know, you play two pieces, two notes, two pitches, and then a th third phantom pitch is generated. So this is on an arrangement, um, on an arrangement level, this is sort of a, a similar 
were metaphorically similar to that. Daughter of the Gods is, uh, and 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 it's great too because like, and you know, once when you put some when you put some more thought into it, it does it does absolutely thematically have its own place. And the other songs on Afternoons really are a whole different animal, and yet it sets up the other songs beautifully. Well, thank yeah. you. And I do think that because that's pretty much an EP of love songs for the most part, that it does it does take that tone because it is I feel like it's a vaguely romantic song. Like I don't mm-hmm. think it's a love song, but I think it I think if that's the mindset someone goes into for it, they're gonna be like, Oh, this is clearly a love song, you know? Yeah, I think there's impressions of that, you know? It's not well, it's not heavy in like a dark way and there's no you know, there's really yeah, I mean it. it it's, but I but I think some of that does depend on. I I don't know that you would get that the, at the first listen. I think if you after you heard the other three songs and you went back and started again, it would definitely you would definitely have uh, that perspective. I I'm just I look back on the EP and there's so much of it that I'm. It's I I'm still proud of that one because you have this one song that was super you know kind of old and then. To see you, like Hannah was packing up to come back from from L.A. And we had been talking on the phone and video chatting like every day. And then, um, I mean, I was literally just seeing about someone packing boxes and, and getting ready to to leave somewhere and being excited mm-hmm. to see somebody. And um, I actually, I laugh a lot because I have a weird fear of mice. I always have. <laughs> and I was writing that song with just a guitar and like sitting there with my notebook and I wrote the lyric, uh, you crawl across the floor. And not long after I wrote that lyric, I saw a mouse run across my living room floor, my old place in Oxford. And I was like, I made a joke to Hannah about it, but it was like this bad omen that I had created. That's a weird sign. Huh? Yeah, absolutely. And then with, uh, you know, then you have the third song uh, with you all the time. That's such just, I mean, it's kind of a goofy little love song, but then, I mean, Afternoons, the title track is still one of my favorite things I've ever made. Like, I, I love, I lo- I'm so proud of how that track came out. And I don't uh, I've heard Daughters, Daughter of the Gods live, but I've definitely heard Afternoons. And it's, yeah, it, it's, it's a pretty great, it's got a great vibe. And it's just, uh, well, thank you. That's a good, that's a good song. It actually, I kind of got to see the process of, of Daughter of the Gods happen with that one in, in a, in a uh, kind of hyper fast way. Cause I was writing it on guitar and it sounded a lot like a George Harrison song, like too much like a George Harrison song. Okay. And uh, I'd worked on a couple different possible arrangements, but I woke up one, one morning and I saw a little mini documentary that was getting shared around Facebook about Wendy Carlos. And granted I didn't do it all with monophonic synths, but I was like, Oh, it'd be really cool if I just went into the room and like started building this with just keyboards, like, you know, yeah. nothing else. And then, so the drums are literally like layered uh, drum loops from the Chord K oscillator, and yeah. everything else is the the main keyboard sound is a uh, a Casio tone like CT four sixty, and then all of the other layers are from a mono synth, just stacked and stacked and stacked. And uh, I I've been kind of playing with all these different arrangements of that song, and then I saw a video about Wendy Carlos. I was like, ah, I want to do something like that. And then just like got up and walked into the other room and started as soon as I kind of got woken up, you know. <laughs> Right. No, that's that's and those are the best days is when you have you have something that you weren't planning on it. You 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 take in this whatever it is and you have this sensory experience or it gives you something to think about. And then you just go right in and you just make this beautiful 
thing. And when the, when they come off like that, it's so fulfilling, so nice. Absolutely. For sure. 